everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Yvonne Rosales, who is running for DA in El Paso, Texas. Welcome to our show, Yvonne. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So we definitely live in interesting times right now, and I was interested to know how are national events impacting your DA's race? Uh, Well, it's definitely uh, giving everybody an opportunity to examine criminal justice reform. Um, I think for the most part, um, the police department within El Paso County is doing a magnificent job. Um, but I, I know that there are issues uh, within the current administration that need to be addressed uh, for the future. And so that is one of the reasons why I decided to run for DA. Um, we currently have a 28-year incumbent. Uh, thank goodness for retiring. Um, but, you know, I think part of the problems with justice, uh, especially within the DA's office, is when you don't have term limits, and you have somebody who's in power uh, for over 20 years. So um, that's definitely why I wanted to run against the current administration. I think the policies and procedures currently in place are very outdated and, and it's going to get into the modern era. So what are the big issues facing El Paso at this point? Um, right now in El Paso, um, it's more about the current plea bargains, um, really just, like I said, there's been a state of complacency uh, because the current incumbent really didn't have any challengers uh, in 28 years. So um, it got to a point where they pretty much felt almighty and powerful. So this is why we need to either have term limits or have people who are really willing to challenge an individual after they've been in office for a certain amount of time. It's just about making sure that we have a correct criminal justice system in place. Um, Right now, there's a lot of policies that are kind of taking away uh, defendants' rights, right to an expunction or right to early termination. And uh, those are just things that they're part of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure and our current administration in the DA's office isn't really adhering to those uh, parts of the code. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in El Paso. Um, I'm a graduate of St. Mary's School of Law, and I've been a practicing attorney 
for nearly 20 years. I actually started my career as an assistant DA here under the current uh, DA, and I worked there for approximately four years. And after that, um, I decided it was time to go out into private practice. So I came out of private practice around 2005, and I've been uh, practicing uh, criminal defense for nearly 15 years. But overall, I've been a licensed attorney for 20 years. And and why did you want to go back into prosecution? Initially, I thought it'd be good to get good practice, to get some trial experience in, learn how to really read and evaluate a case. And um, so that was a great starting point in my legal career. Um, and I thought, honestly, that that would be the best place to actually make sure that true justice was done, you know, taking into account the circumstances of each individualized case. I really felt that that's where you could make the biggest impact and, and the biggest difference. Um, I know a lot of people go into criminal defense because that's where they really feel that they're advocating for their clients. And that's certainly true. But from my perspective, as an individual, that's where I could make the biggest impact by being compassionate and caring, yet firm and strong when I needed to be. And I felt like the prosecutor really has um, more of the, the discretion to be flexible or to stand firm. Uh, depending on what the case may have been at the time. Now, you mentioned that you had concerns about uh, the way the current DA operates. Can you elaborate on some of them? Sure. Like I said, uh, one of the big cases here in El Paso um, was the Daniel Villegas case. Uh, This is a case where the current DA actually tried that when he first got into office. It was a mistrial. They tried it again. He did get convicted. But after strength, uh, rigorous appeals processes, um, after it was finally appealed, what finally happened was that they ruled that the confession that Mr. Villegas had given at the age of 17, 18, uh, was actually a coerced confession. So even though the evidence was out of the case and uh, witnesses started recanting or basically saying, you know what, we don't really think that it happened the way we said it did, you know, 20 years ago, the current DA decided to go ahead and continue the prosecution of that case. And after, you know, millions of dollars being poured into prosecuting that case with lack of evidence, they ended it, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict. And, you know, what I find a little bit disturbing is when you have an administration and prosecutors who undermine the criminal justice system by, you know, publicly saying, okay, that's what the jury decided, but we disagree with their decision. We stand by our prosecution of the case. So when you have that type of leadership within such a powerful office, um, it is very uh, disconcerting um, for myself. And I know for a lot of the members of our community, they were really upset that the current DA continued to press and prosecute that case because of the fact that all the evidence basically been tossed out. And in my my belief is that if the confession was coerced, then to me that means the rest of 
of the case was tainted and the integrity of the investigation tainted. So I don't believe that Mr. Viega should have proceeded through his third trial. Um, and I certainly would have handled that case much differently. So overall, what are you hoping to accomplish as the DA? DA, we just need to uh, bring in more transparency. Um, I know that there's been a lack of investigation to public corruption cases that have been taken to his current office. Um, I believe in using the Texas workers to help conduct an independent investigation um, so that that way the public can be notified as to what the results were of those independent investigations into public corruption cases, police misconduct cases, and just have more transparency in government, letting the people know what's going on and why the decisions that are being made within the DA. There's really no public media relationship between the current DA and the community, and I, and I need to change that. I also want to reform the philosophies within the DA's office among the prosecutors. I think by having them have more training in uh, DNA evidence, coerced confessions, learning how to spot, um, you know, a coerced confession and eyewitness identification, I think better training in those areas will help uh, preserve the integrity of the types of cases that are being prosecuted. And just overall fairness and justice. You know, the Code of Criminal Procedure says this is uh, a, a prosecutor shall seek justice, not convictions. And right now, I think the philosophy in the DA's office is the opposite of the way the code states. And I want to make sure that anybody working under my administration, should I win this election, um, comes into um, understanding of the philosophy that our job is to make sure that the right thing is done. And sometimes that means that you got to get rid of a bad case, uh, a poor investigation, or a case that just doesn't have enough evidence to proceed. You know, we, we cannot just be seeking convictions just for the sake of a conviction. Sometimes probation is an appropriate thing to do just because of the circumstances. You know, obviously you need to send the bad guys away. Um, but you need to do it properly and within the parameters of the law. And when is the election? Uh, our current runoff date is scheduled in one week, actually. We start June 29th. The early voting starts June 29th and will run through July 10th. And then election day will be July 14th. And, uh, and tell us a bit about your opponent. Uh, my opponent is... Um, He's only been licensed for six years, and um, he's worked at the DA's office his entire six years that he's been an attorney, and I think part of my concerns with him is that, first and foremost, you know, he doesn't know any other job philosophy. He doesn't have real-life experience. He's only 29 years old, and that is the only job he's ever known in his professional career. And, you know, an elected DA is somebody who not only has trial experience, but somebody who's good in management, who's good in budgeting. And, um, you know, my opponent has never had the opportunity to supervise 
anybody do performance evaluations on employees, has never had the opportunity to go through the hiring and uh, growth plan performance evaluations with employees, and just lack that overall business experience. Like I said, I, I myself have been in uh, private practice for nearly 15 years, and I've had those opportunities to do performance evaluations and uh, manage budget and just have that management experience in conjunction with the trial experience uh, that I've had over the, the last 20 years. So um, I want to talk to you about some kind of big issues in the criminal justice system. Um and start with police accountability. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the role of the DA's office in holding police accountable in terms of police misconduct, in terms of use of force, um, in, in terms of officer-involved shootings? Uh, what do you see the role at, uh, of the DA's office uh, under you um, uh, for that issue? Right. Um, yeah, in El Paso, I it's very important for myself um, to talk, you know, upon going into office, it would be important for me to have these conversations with the chief of police and the sheriff uh, within El Paso County and just make sure that we're on board as far as um, policies and procedures, how cases would be presented to our office. You know, I know each of those law enforcement agencies has their own um, internal affairs department. Uh, and of course, depending on, you know, is it something that can be taken care of in-house, you know, if police misconduct is strictly within in-house, uh, did they violate a regulation or a rule within the department policy, then that's something that, you know, those, those men can take care of. Um, but as far as anything with officer-involved shootings, I think it's important to have an independent investigative team come in like this. Texas uh, Rangers, and they come in, they, they conduct the investigation, and then there is no dispute as to the integrity of that investigation. And something that uh, comes up to the level where criminal charges need to be uh, filed, then we'll go ahead and do that. I know right now there is a huge movement calling for any candidate uh, or elected official like a DA um, not to receive any campaign funds from police unions, you know, in order to make sure that there would no not be any undue influence uh, in the case where, where those situations would arise. I am certainly thinking that, that that would be a smart decision in any kind of future campaigns is that any elected DA uh, not take uh, campaign contributions from the police unions just to um, preserve the integrity and the appearance uh, to the community that no wrongdoing will be done and that if any criminal charges are never brought, that there was no financial contribution that influenced that decision-making process. So I'm certainly for it and I'm willing to commit to, to not taking any uh, police donations so that it doesn't appear that that would have been something that would have influenced the decision that I made in the future regarding any police misconduct cases that might be brought to office. And then 
the COVID pandemic has been a big uh, issue in the criminal justice system, the need to release people from jails and prisons. How do you see your role? What's happening in El Paso with regard to uh, jail populations right now? Um, that was happening with the misdemeanors and nonviolent offenses and misdemeanors being the low-level lo- offenses here in El Paso. Um, they pretty much, judges in the jail magistrate have been giving um, PR bonds where the person just signs a piece of paper promising to go back to the court or appear in court when called upon. Um, So they do have the public defender's office working those cases so that people are not um, kept in longer than 48 hours. Uh, They try to give them those PR bonds. On the higher level offenses and uh, uh, more serious crimes where they might be violent um, perpetrators, then what's happening is that they're trying to at least impose what are called split bonds. Split bonds are are the partial promise, you know, um, instead of a $30,000 cash bond, 15 of that would, for example, be like a promise to come back to court, and then the other 15 would be through the use of a bonding company, what they call the surety bond. So I know that they're using a lot of split bonds on those other cases where it, it, they potentially could pose a, a danger to to uh, people out here in the community. So it's all been a trying to do a balancing between protecting the community, but also trying to protect the health and safety of the inmates. Um, and I think that's why there's been this push to just go ahead and PR bond uh, as many misdemeanor, low-level, nonviolent offenses as possible. And and working as, as best I, they can to uh, try to do those bonds on the more serious cases. You don't want to keep anyone confined and put them in a danger as far as their health is concerned, but you also have to keep the safety of the community uh, into consideration just to make sure that those violent offenders aren't let back out with little ramification or punishment if they should not return to to court. And I think that's just the concern is to make sure that we get people back into court uh, once once everything kind of gets back into normal situations. And how do you see that COVID perhaps has changed our thinking about how to handle incarceration in general? Or has it? That's a tough one. I I guess with respect to those of us involved in the criminal justice system, I, I think we're starting to take a new approach that do we really need to keep somebody confined if they don't have the financial resources to bond out? You know, and I think it's definitely taking a... Um, having an impact as far as how quickly they can resolve cases. You know, sometimes I know cases can go unfiled or unindicted for months. So I I think it's definitely making everybody rethink, like, how fast can we start moving these cases? How fast can we get them into court? And definitely, I know the judges are starting to put a little bit more pressure on 
DA's office right now so that there's more communication between the prosecutors and the defense bar in order to try to reach a resolution uh, more quickly than under normal circumstances. Obviously, as defense attorneys, you don't want to give up any rights that your client is entitled to, like the right to trial and the right to review evidence and things of that nature. But I think um, what's going to have to happen with the DA's office is that they're going to have to try to speed up the process a little bit where they hand over those reports to the defense bar a lot sooner uh, than usual so that we don't as it is, the, the criminal justice system was already starting to backlog, at least here in El Paso. Uh, but it's definitely going to start putting more pressure on the prosecution side of it to work a little bit more expeditiously and to be in better communication with the defense bar, to move cases along and move cases in a matter that's both fair to victims and fair to to defendants what what is your view on bail reform on bail reform there you know there are there's some good aspects to making sure that we don't keep people incarcerated just because they're indigent and they can't afford it there's different ways to work with trying to keep track of an individual as far as getting them to report to court but we have to be very careful that when you have very serious crimes like aggravated assault with deadly weapons, um, you know, assault family violence where you have the same defendant and the same victim uh, over the course of a certain amount of time, you repeat DWI offenders. We need to make sure that we're very careful on just letting them out on PR bond. We need to again, consider the split bond so that part of um, their bond requires that they put some kind of cash down and the use of a bonding company. I know that bonding companies are very good about helping to, to secure the appearance of a defendant in court. You know, there's money invested, so there's a desire to make sure that these individuals get to court. Uh, so we have to be very careful. We need to make sure we balance uh, the good versus the potential detriment to, to the community. Uh, so again, it's not about punishing a defendant as far as keeping them incarcerated, but it's about the security of making sure that they're going to return to court and, and face um, the charges one way or the other, whether they decide to proceed to trial um, but it's just a, a security to make sure that um, we don't have any bonders. So I know that we've been talking to the bail bond companies here in El Paso, and the problem is that even through the the misdemeanors, um, the rate of absconders has significantly increased since the PR bonds have been imposed. And so we need to look at what's going on. Is it that a defense lawyer isn't getting the proper information, you know, is a clerk putting on wrong information, maybe fails to put an apartment number. So we have to be really careful with the, we have to make sure everybody's doing a very diligent job so that the defendant doesn't 
mistakenly get a warrant for failure to appear just because of the fact that uh, the defense lawyer had the wrong information and couldn't couldn't make contact with a with a defendant. So we need to be very careful that we don't lose anybody through the cracks in the system so that everybody has their fair day in court and that uh, victims, you know, do, do get their their day as well and they, they feel that they are protected. So um, bail reform, it's good on, on many levels because we definitely don't want to keep anybody incarcerated just because of the fact that they cannot make a cash bond. But there's other ways to alleviate uh, the possibility that they might not return. You just give our reporting dates. You can do home visits. So there's other things that can be taken into consideration uh, just to make sure that we get these individuals back back court so that we can all deal with us these cases and that we don't have any cases or thousands of cases that just end up piling with no resolution. So one of the issues that you've pushed is a conviction integrity unit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, basically the, excuse me, the conviction public integrity unit will be comprised basically of two parts. The public integrity part of it is to make sure that um, we carefully review any cases that are brought to light with respect to public corruption, police misconduct, um, officer-involved shooting. The cases that highly trained, experienced attorneys are going to be looking at in order to make sure everything was properly investigated, cooperate again with the Texas Rangers or any other independent uh, reviewing investigative unit. And then the second part is comprised of the conviction integrity unit. Uh, We need to make sure that, again, if any evidence is brought by the defense bar to demonstrate that somebody's been wrongfully convicted, such as in the Daniel Villegas case where there was a coerced confession, then we need to be willing to reopen, reevaluate, and make that determination uh, in an expeditious manner. We don't want anybody wasting away years of their life in prison based on something that was illegally obtained or falsified or any kind of investigation of the the case, the integrity was compromised. Uh, That goes contrary to the face of of the criminal justice system. So it's going to be comprised, uh, the unit itself will be comprised of some attorneys um, with 10 years or more experience, and we're also going to make sure that, um, that, like I said before, that everybody within the office gets updated training on the new techniques to spot course confession, to, to look at the integrity of the collection, preservation, and use of DNA, uh, DNA evidence, and just to get with the modern times as far as you know, eyewitness identification. You know, there's been a lot of studies done where those eyewitness identifications of convictions obtained on something that was wrong. So we we need to make sure that if any of that evidence is brought to our attention, that we handle it uh, expeditiously. You know, my concern, honestly, 
by winning office, I'm I'm almost a little afraid that any uh, any case that involves the detective that obtained that coerced confession uh, from Daniel Villegas, I'm almost afraid that that's going to open up a whole can of worms of cases to be reviewed on the case that he touched. Um, it's it's a scary thought to know that we would have that many cases to review. But I think it's even scarier to know that potentially there are more individuals like Daniel that are going to come out from El Paso because of improper police techniques. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying, I, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. For the most part, I think most of our police department is, is doing a fantastic job. Um, I believe in the integrity of, of most of our officers, but I'm also not blind and I'm not naive to the fact that sometimes there are a few bad apples that we need to deal with. And, and that unfortunately, that's just, just that's the fact of life, uh, no matter what, you know, agency you're dealing with. And any other issues that you're really pushing in this election? Um, you know, the, the integrity unit is a huge one, and especially because of what happened with Daniel here in El Paso. Um, but I also think a huge cornerstone of my platform is developing the first mental health unit, uh, review unit, uh, within the DA's office. So that what we're doing is we're tracking cases where a defendant has been diagnosed with bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, PTSD. If they're nonviolent offenders, um, I think we need to look at those cases a little bit differently. My hope is to gear them in a path of assistance rather than criminalizing somebody because, uh, let's say, of a family violence incident where somebody, a defendant, has a mental health issue, they're not taking their their uh, medications, you know, and the family just gets exasperated and they don't know how to control an individual when they're, when they're having their episode. Sometimes they call law enforcement to try to help them out and, and family violence charges ended up getting presented to the DA's office. So rather than trying to criminalize that individual, what we would ra- rather do is make sure that we talk to the family and provide them with resources where they can try to get assistance for the defendant and then make sure that um, the defense attorney is afforded an opportunity to work closely with their client so that we can try to steer them in the right direction for the mental health resources that they might need. Um, if they're veterans, then we can try to them involved with the Veterans Hospital. El Paso is a huge military community, and we need to make sure that we take care of our former veterans. Uh, if they're suffering from PTSD, our goal is not necessarily to criminalize that individual if they're not getting the proper treatment. We want to make sure that they're getting the proper treatment that they deserve. And so uh, that's one of the huge reforms I want to try to make. Part of that is a different branch where uh, when we're addressing crimes involving alcohol 
or illegal substances, I want to make sure that, again, resources were working better with the community, um, not just within the city level, but hopefully getting some funding through the state and national level so that we can provide defendants an opportunity to try to deal with any substance abuse or alcohol abuse issues that they might have and in order to prevent them from coming back into the system. Because quite honestly, I believe that once you get to your third or fourth DWI, we're not really dealing with an issue that, I think we're really dealing with an issue of a substance abuse problem. And so rather than waiting till it gets that far or where somebody could actually hurt another individual, I'd rather see if the first time that they come into our system, if we can kind of nip the problem in the bud and try to get um, these individuals the potential assistance that they may may need. I'm not saying that anybody who comes in on a DWI or substance abuse uh, case at the first time is necessarily an addict. Um, some people just, you know, they make a mistake, they use poor judgment, and they get caught. And it's as simple as that. And others, you know, if you just really take the time to investigate it, then you'll realize through, you know, the probation department caseworker or through a social worker working with these individuals, you'll realize that there's a substance abuse problem. So rather than having them come back a year, two or three years later, if we try to deal with the problem right at its core, then we can prevent them from coming back into the system while also helping them. And I believe that that's part of a district attorney's job. It's not just about conviction, conviction. Yes, it's about seeking a conviction for a victim, making sure that justice is served. But I think justice also means that we sometimes have to help a defendant who just doesn't realize that they need help at the time. Again, when you're dealing with mental illness, alcohol or substance abuse issues. All right. We're just about out of time. I was wondering if you had any closing thoughts. Um, no, I'm, I'm just asking, you know, for people who are interested in seeing a more progressive DA with new policies and procedures um, and just taking a different perspective on the criminal justice system just to come out and vote. And whether it's here or anywhere across the nation, it's just important to have a voice and have a say-so in who is running your local government. So I'm just asking people to get out and vote and become involved is basically all. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You have a great week. You too. This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Yvonne Rosales, who's running for DA, and, and she uh, the election actually starts next week. So uh, it's coming up, and uh, she's facing a more traditional DA. She's running as a progressive reformer in El Paso, Texas. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening 
Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.